like Bill was saying, we're, uh, we made it all the way to the, the last chapter in John. So we're in, uh, I'm actually, we need to go over the last couple verses in chapter 20, but I'll do that at the end. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 21, verse 1, and these are appearance stories, post-resurrection appearance stories. Last week, we took a look at a couple that happened in Jerusalem, right, one on Easter night when Jesus appears to his disciples when they're in the room, and then eight days later with them and Thomas, okay? But, well, now we're, we're shifting geographical locations. We're going from Jerusalem back up to Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias, which is more commonly known as the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is going to make another appearance to his disciples. So this is chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only other time besides chapter 1 Nathaniel is mentioned. We've met, we meet Nathaniel in chapter 1, right? He's the one that Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, and then Nathaniel goes, okay, you're the, you're the son of God. Um, He's here again, but this is where we're actually told that he's from Cana in Galilee, where the first signs were performed, according to John's gospel. And then right after him, you have the sons of Zebedee. The first time the sons of Zebedee are explicit, the first and only time, I think they're explicitly mentioned in the gospel of John. Now, of course, many people believe that the beloved disciple of John is John, the son of Zebedee, but this is the first time that the sons of Zebedee are referred to in that way. And two, other, two others of his disciples were together. So we have seven altogether. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Last time we encounter a charcoal fire is when Peter's about to deny Jesus Christ three times. That'll come in. uh, You'll need to remember that for next week when Bill preaches. Um. Uh, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon and Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. Now, it's amazing. When you see exact numbers like this in the Bible, theologians have a field day, and they just lose their mind. And I, I just want to share with you one of the interpretations that I came across, not because I think there's anything to it, but it's just so amusing. So, so the number 153, okay, it turns out if you take the first 17 numbers, right, the first 17 integers and add them together, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 all the way up to 17, you get 153. 
And 17 is 10 plus 7. And 10 is the number of completion. And 7 is the number of perfection. And moreover that, if you take 17 dots and make them into a triangle, like one dot, two dots, three dots, you have an equilateral triangle, uh, which, uh, you know, three, the number of the Trinity, and each side has 17 on it. Now, um, did John... <laughs> Did John have any of this in mind when he wrote that number? I want to say I highly, I highly doubt it that he he thought his audience was going to pick up on that. But St. Augustine did, and I just wanted to share that with you. The 153 is probably just meant to be the, the number of fish they caught, and they just wanted to put the number down so we would, we would have it. But there you go. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So one question that immediately comes to mind is, okay, last week as we saw, Jesus uh, appears to the disciples in Jerusalem, and he, he commissions them and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. What is Peter doing? <laughs> he, he, goes, he goes back to Galilee, okay, and he, he decides that he's, he's going to go fishing. And that, it seems kind of like you would, you would expect maybe he would just immediately like just jump into ministry after all that. And some have seen this as almost like some extreme commentators have seen this almost as kind of an apostasy on Peter's part, like Hoskins, for example. Hoskins describes the scene as one of complete apostasy. Uh, but Raymond Brown says, but it is rather one of aimless activity undertaken in desperation. And if you think about it uh, just a little bit, I think you can see how this, how disorienting this would be. For Okay, so for three years... They have had Jesus in front of them, okay, Physical, physically in front of them. And all they had to do was just do what he was doing and they'd follow him around wherever he goes. You know, it was easy. They could see him. And now all of a sudden he's gone. Now think of how disorienting that would be. Like you, you knew what to do when he was there. Now what? And so Peter's thinking, well, I, you know, I guess I'm going fishing, and there's nothing, you know, sinful about going fishing, you know. And one of the things that Dale Bruner points out in his commentary is we need to remember that um, these uh, these simple, you know, these these day-to-day things that we do are places where Jesus can reveal Himself to us. They they we need to remember that the marketplace, the office, the home. Okay, like this, this Saturday, you know, we don't, we, but we're in the midst of it. It just seems like it's just the day to day. It's bore, or it's, it's not necessarily boring. <laughs> like this Saturday, you know, uh, my wife, she's getting ready to go to Walmart to buy some groceries and, um, finds out right, but right, she's, she's just getting ready to leave, okay, and finds out that the toilet is clogged, all right, uh, because our, daughter Avery decided to flush a toy down the toilet. Now, we didn't know this at the time. It's just clogged, and she's trying to unclog it, and she's not having success. Our daughter's in the van, our oldest daughter's in the van waiting for her, right? She's had a stressful week, and now the, and, and she can't unclog it, you know? And so I'm, I'm saying, okay, well, just, just go ahead and, and, and go to Walmart. She's like, well, I can't do that. You've got the other three with you. And I was like, no, nah, just go. It'll be fine. 
So she goes, and now I'm stuck with this clogged toilet and my three young kids, and I've got all I want to deal with, by the way. As soon as she leaves, the doorbell rings. Okay, fine. It's, it's one of the neighborhood girls. She wants to come and play. Okay, go ahead. Come on in, but don't use the, don't use the toilet. <laughs> okay. And so I'm in there trying to fix the toilet, and they're playing with uh, kinetic sand. You know, it's like Play-Doh, um, but it's textured like sand. And I know this is risky, but I've got this toilet I'm trying to fix. So I'm in there trying to fix the toilet while they're doing this. And I thought the one I would have to watch out for is a two-year-old. Wrong. It was the six-year-old this time who decided it would be a good idea to take the kinetic sand and pull it apart all over the floor. Now, because I'm trying to fix the toilet, I know that I need to check on them. So I come and check on them, and that's what I see. It's all over the floor, and this neighborhood girl's got it caked all under her shoes. Okay, so now I've got a new... (laughs) I have to shift gears now. We've got to take care of the kinetic sand. So we're picking that up, and my son doesn't want to do it, even though he made the mess. He thought it was very unfair for me to ask him to clean up his own mess. Uh, but we're doing that, and she's scraping, this neighborhood girl's scraping the sand off with a toy knife. I, I find out I can't fix the toilet with what I got there, so I throw the kids in the van. We all go to Home Depot to buy a toilet auger, Okay. And, and finally, it, it all gets worked out. But when this, this is the point I make. When you're in the midst of all that, it, it doesn't seem like that's a God thing, you know. <laughs> but but G- Jesus, Jesus uh, if you invite him, he'll be there with you. <laughs> he'll, he'll come. Even in situations like that, that is, that is a ministry opportunity. Now, it doesn't seem like that. You know, but when we think about what it means to train up a child, you know, we, we might have like these naive imaginations that training up a child, okay, so they'll be at the table with their hands folded, all being perfectly still and quiet while I read them scripture. <laughs> that, that's not, no. <laughs> uh, you're, 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 you're cleaning up kinetic sand and fishing toys out of, out of the toilet. But, but the way that we respond to that as parents, and this is so key, you know, especially for fathers, your children, what they think about God is going to be crucially impacted by the way you relate to them. Probably, maybe more than anything else, the way they think about God is going to be like the way they think about you, by and large, in those early years. That makes a huge impression, and so it is serious business, and God can show up anywhere. And we need to keep that spiritual focus in mind. And now here's, here's Peter. He's fishing. He's a professional fisherman, and he has caught nothing. Okay, and so a stranger shows up on the shore. And I'm sure if, if you were a professional fisherman, you just had a very bad night, you totally failed. Some stranger shows up on the shore, looks like he's never caught a fish in his life, and he asks you, how you doing, fellas? Go away. <laughs> like we've been fishing all night. We have, we have caught, we've caught nothing. That's, that's how we're doing. Failure. And it's, that's interesting too, by the way. Isn't it interesting how Jesus has a tendency to show up after we fail? And failure in this, in this sense is a good, is a good teacher because it is a reminder that we desperately need on a regular basis. As far as I'm aware, the disciples never catch a fish in the Bible without Jesus' help. Now, by the way, many commentaries are in agreement here, and I think they are right, that what we're seeing here is a figure of the Great Commission. Matthew explicitly talks about the Great Commission at the end of his gospel, chapter 28, 
John is figuratively pointing to the Great Commission here in this fishing story. And Jesus says, okay, Peter, throw the net on the other side. And to his credit, he obeys. They cast the net on the other side, and now they have 153 fish that they're hauling ashore. The beloved disciple points out, that's Jesus. And I love this. Uh, th- this is so funny about Peter. It reminds me of that scene, this, the old movie Forrest Gump. When, when Forrest is on the fishing boat and he sees Lieutenant Dan <laughs> out on the shore and he's just so excited that he runs on, Lieutenant Dan! And he just <laughs> runs right off the fishing boat into the water and just, he's just so excited. And then his boat like crashes into a dock, right? Well, this is the same. Peter's like, Jesus, you know, and he just jumps in. The, he, he loves Jesus. Now, remember, Peter, this is, this is a rough time for him because he hasn't really been fully rehabilitated from his failure. And that's and Bill's going to address that. Where's Bill? Is he somewhere in here? <laughs> He's going to address that next week, Peter's rehabilitation. But but we need to remember that um, he he loved Jesus. Yeah, he failed big time. He, he failed as a, a disciple. He's failed as a, as a fisherman. But he, lo- he did love the Lord. And so he, he swims out to him. And then they're hauling this, they're hauling this, um, this net to shore. Okay. And, uh, and, and like I said, you know, with, with, their, with their catching the fish... In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about really what the Christian life is all about. If we go back to to John chapter 15, let me just read some of the verses from chapter 15, um, beginning with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that needs a little bit of qualification, right? Because even someone who rejects Jesus, uh, you're still going to be able to chew gum and eat cereal and walk, right? He's talking about kingdom work. Apart from me, you, you, you can do nothing. And that, again, our, our, failures, our failures tell us sometimes who we're trusting in. I like what E. Stanley Jones has to say about this. Um, he, said, he writes, We laid a demand on the souls of our people. Our gospel is a demand. But somehow, after a few days, the will relaxes and we are where we were. It doesn't work. Why? The reason is that when we say, I'll try, we are still on the basis of self. It is self-effort. Before the self can put forth any real effort, it must be released from its inner conflicting desires. When we say, I'll trust... We shift the basis from self to Christ. 
Jesus said, throw that net. You haven't caught anything. It doesn't look like there's any fish in that water at all. Throw that net on the other side. And he trusted him. And now here he comes hauling this big catch of fish. And here's another interesting detail that John tells us in verse 11. Um, And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now here again, many commentators have picked up on what they they believe to be um, a figure that John is pointing to. Um, This is what Dale Bruner has to say about this. He says, Jesus would like us in all our diversity... And in all are often slightly different emphases, as he says unforgettably in his great prayer, to be one, so that the world would believe that you, Father, sent me. The net does not have to split, though filled with multiple buried and outside fish. They think that this is pointing to unity. And unity is tricky. It's it's a puzzle. Because it involves doing this this very unpleasant business sometimes of separating the essentials from the non-essentials, right? And and here's another thing that makes this tricky, I think, that people forget. To say that something is a non-essential does not mean it's not important. I think people sometimes jump to that conclusion. Oh, it's not essential and it doesn't matter. No. Sometimes these non-essentials are very important and they're significant. They're just not absolutely essential. And learning to discern that is necessary to have true unity and harmony. And this was a lesson that the early church had to learn, and it was very tough for them. You know, one thing that we we don't always appreciate is there was a situation there in the early church that they had to deal with that will never be repeated. And, and of course, we realize, okay, well, in that first century, you had a lot of Jewish Gentile stuff going on, and we appreciate that. And Paul, you know, he, he talks about the law quite a bit. And, and, um, and so we kind of get it. Like, yeah, Paul was saying you, you, you don't need the law. It's, it's simple, right? It wasn't, it wasn't quite that simple, okay? All of the earliest Christians were Jewish. They were Jewish converts. And in the beginning, the Gentiles were the minority. And here's something else that we often don't appreciate. Many of those Jewish Christians did not stop observing the law. For example, James the Just, who wrote the book of James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, all his life was a law observer. He didn't stop once he became a Christian. And it's very interesting for that reason, for that very reason, it's very interesting that when you go to Acts chapter 15 and they're discussing this very issue, what do we do about these Gentiles? It's James who gives the the definitive, you know what? We're not going to force them to observe the law. Now, now why, why am I pointing that? Because the law was important to James. That was part of his heritage. That was part of his identity. That was part of his culture. And it was important to him. But he said, you know what? It's not an essential. And we're not going to force Gentiles to get circumcised. We're not going to force them to, to be burdened with the whole of the Torah. So he said, we're, we're going to tell them to abstain from... Um, food that had been dedicated to idols and sexual immorality. But, that, but we're stopping there. And that, that kind of, of Christianity is what preserves unity. You see, there's two, there's two big mistakes that are made here. You have the, the liberal progressive mistake that says, well, not, we're, we're going to solve this in-house fighting by just saying nothing's an essential. Ah, problem solved. 
uh, congratulations, you've just eradicated Christianity. I mean, if there are no essentials, then Christianity is nothing. It's just you're, you're believing whatever you want to believe. But there is an opposite mistake, church, and that is to make everything an essential. And conservatives make this mistake. And I was listening to a conversation just yesterday, I think it was last night, between Dr. Sean McDowell, who is the son of Josh McDowell, right? Evidence demands a verdict. It was Dr. Sean McDowell and a guy named Dr. John Marriott. They are talking about unity, and they were giving a modern-day example. <laughs> and they said, okay, so, so for example, this was John Marriott talking. He said, we all believe that it's essential that God created the heavens and the earth. Ex nihilo, right? All things invisible and visible, God created it all. That's an essential. It's an essential to say that mankind has been created in his image, that this is not the unforeseen, unintended byproduct of a mindless process that God was watching. He's like, oh, that's interesting. Like we were, we were intentionally, deliberately created in the image of God. These are essentials. But then he goes on to say, but how God did it is a different story. And I, this is a hot topic. Uh, this is controversial. There are some Christians and my young earth creationist brothers. I, I admire your zeal. I do. And I know for some of you, you want to say, this is an essential, but I, I humbly have to disagree with you. Especially when I see men like John Lennox and Hugh Ross and Joshua Swamidas and Tim Keller, who's, who's sponsor of the New City Catechism that we went through. All these guys are in the old earth camp. And they are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, kingdom-working people. And I don't want to write them off. Now, I know some Christians do. And, I, and I, get, I get your zeal, but this is one of those things where are, 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 are we really committed to the kingdom work that God has called us to and all that that entails? Okay, when you think about the historic creeds of the Christian faith, there's, there's three major ones to my mind, okay? You've got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedon Creed, Okay. And if you're unfamiliar with what a creed is, a creed is just like a list of essentials. That's kind of what a creed is. And so just to give you an example of what's in these creeds, a a thumbnail sketch, it would be like we believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. We believe he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was born of a virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, buried. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. From there, he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. God, the Son, God, the Father, and God, the Holy Spirit are all God, equal in essence. Jesus is truly God, truly man. You can believe all these things and you can throw biblical inerrancy into boot and it's not good enough for some Christians. And that frustrates me, guys. You cannot say that you truly care about unity if you are going to make every one of your beliefs an essential and then alienate everyone else who does not agree with you. There is a balance that has to be struck. I, that, that's a lot of stuff. You know, what, what did Paul say? If you believe or, or if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead in your heart, you will be saved. That's a pretty short list. You know, and even, even when it comes to things, and again, it's not to say that the issue isn't important. Of course, it's an important issue. It's a significant issue. You know what else is? Salvation. Now, here's, some, here's, a, here's a very interesting bit of church history that a lot of Christians forget about. Uh, a man named John Wesley and a man named George Whitfield. 
Two, two very unlikely partners in the gospel. Why? Because one of them was a Calvinist and one of them was an Arminian. And if you're wondering, you know, what does that mean? It, you know, it, and, and just, just to, to kind of lay it out simply, it means that John Wesley believes that you have a choice in your salvation. George Whitfield wanted to say it's not your choice, it's God's choice. Now, that's an oversimplification, but that's basically what it was. Would you say that's a significant difference? I, that's a significant difference. And yet, these two men partnered up, and they caught a lot of fish. Thousands of people because they, they were willing to recognize one another as brothers. Now, they fought a little bit, by the way. wasn't always easy, but they recognized this is my brother in Christ. And, and I, I'm, I just want to offer up to the church that, you know, it's, if we're going to take this seriously, when we say that we, we all agree that we need to have um, agreement on the true essentials, Right. And I think Emmanuel does a pretty good job with that. Like, we're not going to bend to culture, you know. So when it comes to marriage, for example, we're, we're going to stick with marriage as defined as, you know, a, a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And we're not going to drift where culture drifts. We're, we're good at that at Emmanuel Baptist Church. But this second half, uh, allowing liberty in the non-essentials, do you know what that means in plain English? It means you have to let people disagree with you sometimes. And we don't like it. We want to sit in our theological echo chambers and soak in confirmation bias. Do you want to do that or do you want to catch fish? I want to catch as many fish as we can. And that, that, that's, that's, what this, that's what this boils down to. And it's something that we do need to take seriously. So they haul the net in. The net doesn't break. And they bring the fish to Jesus. And it says, now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Why is John telling us all this stuff? Well, he, he, he tells us at the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So I'm going to go back up to chapter 20. This is verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, I've I've already uh, pointed out uh, that failure uh, is sometimes a good reminder that Jesus is the Christ and not me. Sometimes um, it takes a little more than just failure. I, I've noticed for, for some people, belief is, is a very, very difficult thing. And uh, some people, they just uh, they don't really get there until they, they come to the absolute end of their rope. And I came across this, this story of, of someone who, had, who was... Uh, uh, dealt with mental illness, significant mental illness, for a very, very long time. And he, he gives this testimony. He says, at one, at one time, I reached utter despair and wept and prayed to God for mercy instinctively and without faith in reply. That night, I stood with the other patients. He's, he's in a ward. I stood with the other patients in the grounds waiting to be let into our ward. 
Suddenly someone stood beside me and a voice said, Mad or sane, you are one of my sheep. I never spoke to anyone of this, but ever since 20 years, it has been the pivot of my life. Do you believe? Do you believe this for other people? You know, sometimes it's, it's not just, you know, I have to come to my end of the rope, but what, what about other people when I see that they're at the end of their rope and I feel like I'm, I'm powerless to do anything about it? What do you do in those situations? Let me give you another, another excellent story. This is written by, and I'm going to read this, some of this at length here because it's very good. It's written by a, a professional psychiatrist who is struggling with her, with her patients, one in particular. And it's, it's very instructive. Who, what, what do I believe? Do I believe that I'm the Christ or that Jesus is the Christ? She writes, The silence in my office was broken only by the long, deep sighs of my newly assigned patient, Elizabeth. She had been admitted to the psychiatric unit of the hospital after being rushed to the emergency room following a serious suicide attempt. She had spent months stashing away sleeping pills and then in a clear, calculated way wrote a farewell letter to her mother who had never been able to show her the love she needed, drove down to the ocean, consumed a large quantity of pills and alcohol, and then waited. Within a few hours, she was discovered and rushed to our facility for treatment. Only 27 years old, she looked like a much older woman, broken and shattered by life. My encouragement and human care failed to retrieve her from the pit into which she was slipping. Just like that, she's this is her profession. It's just like Peter. What was he? He was a professional fisherman. What did he catch on his own? Nothing. Her hopelessness filled every corner of the room, and slowly it began to infuse my spirit too. As I counseled her, Elizabeth revealed numerous sickening events in her fractured past. Her father had raped her, her mother had failed to protect her, she had suffered through countless broken, abusive relationships, and then. The final tragedy, pardon me, her baby son had died. I was deeply concerned about Elizabeth and intended to present her case at the staff consultation the following morning. The evening in my comfortable safe home, far removed from the locked doors of the psychiatric unit, I prayed to God, whom I loved but did not know very well. I had always successfully managed to separate my spiritual life from my clinical profession, but now after years of observing wasted lives, I realized nothing short of a miracle would make any difference. Something had to be done about Elizabeth and all the countless others who are crushed and barely existing on the edge of life. Lord, what can I do? I got nothing. I repeated over and over, hoping against hope, that for once I would hear an answer after waiting for what seemed like hours, a warm, loving presence entered my room, and I sensed God's love and deep concern for Elizabeth and all the others I had been praying for. Then came God's strong, steady, loving response, bring them to me. Pray for their healing. I will restore them. The Lord then directed me to Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Suddenly everything became obvious. A veil had been lifted from my mind. It was not what I had to do. It was what God wanted to do. 
That night I contacted several devoted Christian friends and shared my excitement with them. One by one, they committed themselves to pray for Elizabeth, and she did make a miraculous turnaround. What a mighty God we serve, church. Now, we might not agree on everything, but I hope we can agree on that. And uh, I'll, I'll share, um, I was supposed to set my timer, I didn't. Uh, I'll share one more, one more story, because Bill, Bill hinted at this last week, and uh, this is where I'll close, uh, about what happened to us on July 5th with our daughter, Avely. Um, so uh, our daughter, Lily, got a new bike for, for Christmas, and she's pretty excited or for Christmas, for her birthday. Um, uh, and she, she was pretty excited about it, and uh, she went out on a, um, on a bike ride with Avery. And uh, they, they went out, and they came back, and it was fine. Like, it was, a success, it was a successful trip, you know. And then they're like, well, well, well we want to go for another one. I was thinking, oh, okay, you know, right, yeah, go, go get that energy out. Get out, go, go away from me. Go, ride your bike, you know. Um, I'm with you all the time. Um, anyway, they, they go out riding, and then Lily comes back. And after Lily comes back for about 10 minutes, she's like, Daddy, uh, Avery has not come back yet. And I'm thinking, you know, in my, <laughs> I'm thinking, you left her? Um, uh, that's, you know, but okay. So I, I'm thinking, well, I'll just, I'll go outside and I'll turn the corner. And I'm going to see her coming down the street, you know. So I, <laughs> I turn the corner, look, and there's nobody there. And then I look down the street one way, there's nobody there. Okay, and I'm thinking, this is, this is uh, not good. Uh, I go in and tell Tara we've our our daughter hasn't come back, but it's still at this point I think you know I'm going to hop in the van and I'm going to drive around the block and and she's going to be she's going to be there you know we're going to we get this I got this you know just like Peter I know how to fish I know how to fish uh, so I I get in the van with Lily just me and her and we start driving around the neighborhood well we nothing no one okay and this and after about like this is like 30 minutes now she's been gone. And, uh, yeah, T- Tara's in the truck, and she's driving all over Ridgecrest trying to, it's, it's funny and sad, but she's, you know, burning up the streets looking for her. I'm in the van, and, and all the while I've got this impression, you know, that, that God wants me to pull over and pray. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually talking to God, but if I were having conversation, it would have been like, not now, God, I'm looking for my, for my daughter, okay, help me. And I get this, Jeff, pull over and pray. It's now is not the time, God. Help me. Pull over and pray. You know, aren't I spiritual? And I, and I say, okay, God, you win. And I, I, uh, I'm about to call the cops, you know. So I pull, I pull the van over, and I, just, uh, I, I begin by saying, God, have mercy on me, because I know God well enough now that I can't make demands on him. It doesn't work. I can't. He's not a slot machine. So I, I, I just begin, God, I need you to have mercy on me. Um, and then I just, you know, Lily's with me, and I'm sort of praying silently. I just say, God, direct my steps to my daughter. And I, uh, I, I turn towards Dolphin Street, uh, and I take a right, and there's a, there's a truck coming up towards me and somebody waving out of the driver's side window. Okay. And at first I couldn't tell, are they waving at me, you know, or someone else? And they, they kept waving, and I was like, oh, they are. They're waving at me, you know. And uh, they, they, sure enough, they pull up to me, 
And there's like, well, uh, do you have a daughter named Avery? Now, her name is Ava Lee, but no one's, <laughs> that poor girl is going to get that a lot. And I was like, yeah, she's, that's, that's mine. <laughs> um, and then immediately after that, Tara calls. I mean, what, what, a, what a good thing that she didn't call two minutes before that. But she immediately, Tara called, and I said, we've got her. And uh, we, we pull over, and I take her back uh, home. And it was, you know, we had a happy, a happy ending to the story. Now, I, I realize that a skeptic who's listening to this, that's not going to cut in the ice with an atheist. They're going to say, well, Jeff, if your God is so good, why did she get lost in the first place? If your God is so good, why didn't he just miraculously, you know, whisk her up and, and take her to your house, you know? I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I pulled over and prayed, and like less than a minute later, I found her. Now, I, I might just be a small-town city boy, but that's good enough for me. And, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm telling you these things. I'm reading you the Gospel of John because that, it's, it's all about that question. Do you believe? You know, you don't, you don't have to. By the way, you don't have to fail before you believe. You don't have to come to the end of your rope before you believe. Sometimes it helps, but you don't have to. But I'm telling you, there's a Savior out there who loves you and wants to be in your life. And it's the greatest, it's the greatest thing in the world. Do you believe? And as a church, you know, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray for God to grant us the grace to catch some fish. All right, let's bow our heads and let's bow our heads and pray. Uh, Holy Father in heaven, uh, yeah, Lord, we 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 uh, we want you, and I, I pray that you would um, help us to let go of everything between you and us here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. I, I pray that you would burn away everything. That is keeping the leaders and the congregation from abiding in you, Lord. That, that you will, um, that we will humbly uh, recognize through through the power of your grace. I pray we will humbly recognize that apart from you we can do nothing. That we will take that. That you will put that in the in the core of our very beings, Lord, so that we can get out of your way and see you do what you want to do here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We want you to be the shepherd of this flock. Uh, we do thank you for, for your goodness. I thank you for the goodness that you have and, uh, demonstrated in my own life and the goodness that you've demonstrated in many of the lives of my fellow believers here th- today, Lord. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know your name and who, who, is, who has not encountered you yet, Lord, and you're, you're, I pray that they will not resist your grace. I pray that they will not resist your drawing. I pray that they will put their trust in you and that we will see your name glorified here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.